Um, it's good to be back here. My name is Brian Parker. If I have not met you uh, face-to-face, uh, this church uh, and some of you guys uh, individually support our ministry on campus. My wife and I work in the Lehigh Valley uh, near Allentown, Pennsylvania on college campuses with college students, uh, sharing with them the hope and the power of Jesus. And so it's a, a privilege to be back uh, this morning to preach once again. And I think since I last visited this past summer, a lot has changed. You guys are ready to move out. Uh, of this building at least, and we have had somebody move into our home. We just welcomed our third son into the world, Theophilus. So very, very thankful for that. Um, i got to be careful as a dad not to show favoritism because in the Bible, Luke says, oh, most excellent Theophilus. So he is our most excellent, but they're all, they're all excellent little boys. So um, they are not here this morning, but my wife and, and our boys send, send our love. But uh, you might not have realized this past week that all over the world, millions of people, and it's hard to believe, actually were unified in something. Um, they hoped that this upcoming year would be better than the year that we just had. And uh, maybe you guys kind of entered into this and participated in it. Uh, New Year's resolutions. Did anybody make a New Year's resolution? You're like, I don't want to show my hand because then I'm going to be held accountable, right? For not keeping it later. Uh, I personally am not a big New Year's resolution fan, not because uh, I don't think they're a, a great idea, but because usually I don't keep them. And I came across a very insightful quote this week as I was kind of thinking about New Year's resolutions. This is what the author said. He says, don't waste your time with New Year's resolutions. Instead, focus on something better. Resolve. Resolutions are broken because they have to do with wishing. What you need is resolve, new habits, the ability to commit. And I I guess it's a a helpful attempt uh, at, at helping people along. I think the quote falls a little short, though, because here's the thing. What if our problem is that we have trouble committing? What if we don't just boot up naturally with resolve? What if the problem that we have is we kind of think about the new year and what we want to do and what we want to be and what we want to become isn't so much a matter of our skill. What if it's a matter of our desire? And and, and I think that's why, you know, there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. If you've made one, that's great. Um, But I think the scriptures offer us actually something better than just wishful thinking, which is why this morning we're going to look at Psalm 51. This past summer I preached on Psalm 77. We're going to go back a little bit, a few psalms, and be reminded of what God has resolved to do for us such that we can respond to him in joy and hope as we look forward to this next year. And I, I appreciate Psalm 51 as we'll unpack it in a moment because I think this psalm, it shows us that oftentimes the thing that kind of shipwrecks our best intentions and our hopes moving forward in, in the year of 2018, it's not so much, sometimes it can be, but it's not so much the stuff out there, right? It's often the stuff and the enemy within. And so this psalm does a great job of showing us how to approach God, how to commune with God, even when, we, when we're at our worst. So that's where we're heading. Three things, if you want to follow along, there's a little insert on your, in your handout that we're going to see as David writes this psalm. First, we're going to see God's attitude towards sin, Then we're going to see God's actions towards sin. And then lastly, in light of that, we're going to see what a godly response towards sin can look like. So with that in mind, I'm going to read Psalm 51. If you're using one of the the Bibles in the row, page 457, if you open it up and, and have it in front of you as we read. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 
Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51 teaches us how to approach a perfect God even when we are at our worst. If you've never read this before, I think you're in for a treat this morning because right from the get-go, what we learn is that we know exactly who the author is, David, and we know exactly why he's writing. So did you see it right from the top? There's this little superscript. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this superscript, if you will, it's kind of like a neon flashing sign saying, Before you enter the psalm, be reminded of what has happened in history. So at this point in Israel's history, David is king of Israel. He's, he's powerful. He's rich. He's a pretty good guy. And one day he goes up onto his, his roof and he sees from afar a woman named Bathsheba bathing. And rather than look away, he has Bathsheba called to himself and he sleeps with her. The problem is Bathsheba is a married woman. And so he finds out after he sleeps with her that Bathsheba's pregnant. He tries to cover the whole thing up. He has her husband brought home. He has him murdered. And then just when he thinks that he's gotten away with it, God brings Nathan the prophet into David's life to confront him and to lead David to repentance. That's the context of the psalm. That's that's helpful to know as we enter into this because this is David's response to this whole messy and ugly situation. And I think if... If God can forgive a sinner like David, I think it gives you and me hope, even when we're at our worst in our own sin. So first thing that David kind of highlights for us is God's attitude towards sin. God's attitude towards sin. Let me ask you, just kind of in an honest moment, not with kind of the Sunday school answer that you know is true, but honestly, after you have fallen into temptation, after you've done the thing that you've told God you're not going to do, what do you imagine God's facial expression to be like toward you? Do you imagine God to to have a facial expression of annoyance toward you? 
You know, like the coach who you're playing for, you make the, the careless play and he just kind of rolls his eyes like, oh, here we go. Or maybe you think of God as, as one who is just apathetic, right? You've messed up so many times that God, he's just going to call it quits. Like he just walks out of the room. He wants nothing to do with you. Or maybe you view God and you're inclined to see him after you sinned as just vindictive, right? He's just, he's just waiting to nail you. He's just waiting for you to mess up one more time before he cuts you off. I think if anybody had those thoughts of God or, or be inclined to think that'd be David because of what he had done. And yet notice how David starts off the psalm, verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David is showing us that God, if you want to fill it in on your sheet, that he values mercy over condemnation. God values mercy over condemnation. So was David's sin serious in this occasion? Oh my goodness. Like it doesn't get much worse. Did David know that his sin deserved the wrath and punishment of God? He, 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 he sure did. And friends, you and I are in the same boat, but here's the thing. David also knew that God was rich in mercy, that he was rich in mercy. And, 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 and so he, he writes this psalm and he proclaims this. I remember growing up, maybe, maybe it's different here at Grace Redeemer, but the little kids, when I was a little older than the, the ones sitting in this row, they would, they would give, a, I think, like a thing called a track out to the, the kids at the end of the service. Basically a cartoon little booklet. I grew up in the 80s, okay? Um, and, and it would have a Christian message in it. I remember one of the, the messages that I had taken home that day, it would always be seared into my mind. It was a picture of a man, I presume, being dropped from heaven by some kind of ethereal being into a pit of fire, which I had kind of always imagined was hell. And I remember reading that, and as a seven or eight-year-old, I remember literally hell was scared out of me. Like I did not want to go to this place that the, the illustration had imaged. And I think that's a good desire. I don't think any of us should want to go to hell. But I think in a twisted, maybe just in a, a naive kind of way, I, I had imagined God to just be this vindictive person who was just waiting for me to mess up. And so every time I did mess up and sinned and didn't obey my parents, I would kind of hide and I would, I would always pretend that everything was perfect. And so I was the good kid. And I think what, what I missed was the fact that God isn't waiting to nail us. God's waiting to show us mercy. God's waiting to forgive us. 2 Peter 3 says it this way, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, speaking of Jesus' return, as some understand slowness. Rather, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, God values mercy. So how does this apply? I think as you, as you, as you look toward the new year, as you look toward the ways that you'd love to grow or maybe things you'd love to leave behind, Friends, understand that you cannot outsin God. Like you can't outsin God. And you might be surprised at times by the things that come out of your mouth or the things that you can do when nobody else is looking. But understand this God is not surprised, God is not put off. And so don't despair when you sin, but rather turn to a God who is abundant in mercy and who longs to forgive even the worst of our sin. And I think that that's true, that God is abundant in mercy. I think that also applies to the ways that we interact with one another this year. Because if God has forgiven us much, then who are we to hold someone else's sin over them to make them pay when God has made our account full? And so we can forgive others as he's forgiven us. So 
Mercy over condemnation. But that's the, the first thing we see. David also says something else. He shows us part of his attitude is mercy. He also shows us that God values brokenness over sacrifice. Brokenness over sacrifice. What do I mean by brokenness? Look at verse 16. David writes, For you, meaning God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And I think in the vernacular, what David is saying is, God, you don't care if I just, when I sin, if I just try to do a bunch of good things to get back on your side. Right? I don't earn spiritual brownie points by doing a bunch of churchy Bible study things. That's not how your economy works. But what David says does hold value with God is a broken spirit. In other words, a, a saddened heart, a, a real mourning over the fact, not so much that we've broken God's rules, but that we've broken God's heart. That we've broken intimacy with God and relationship with this one who has designed us and created us and died for us and loves us. That's what it means to be broken over our sin. And so how do you know? You go, okay, that sounds good. How do I know if I'm broken over my sin? I'm not even sure if I, if I know what that looks like. Maybe here's a, a few telltale signs of what it doesn't look like. Might mean that you, when you're on the internet, you, you delete your browsing history, but you never ever tell anybody that you're struggling. That's a, a, a sign of false or counterfeit brokenness. Or maybe um, you, you're, you're often in conversation with Christians and they try to help you or they try to speak truth into your life, but yet it doesn't translate into change. And you kind of go through the motions. Or maybe you. Um, have you ever played the time game with God? You sin and then you kind of let enough time pass, whatever that time is. It's never defined. Hoping that things will just kind of get better and that God will kind of be okay with you again. That's, that's a sign of false brokenness. David says those things don't work. As we'll see later, they don't cleanse us. So how do we, how do we cultivate true brokenness? I want to just maybe offer one thing, that only the Holy Spirit himself can convict us of our sin. And so as you read the Bible, guard yourself against just seeing the Bible as a bunch of rules that we've been meant to keep, but rather see it as a relationship that God wants with us. And that every time we turn our back on him, every time we choose something else over, over knowing and delighting in him, we've, we've broken our relationship with our first love. And so ask that God would show you how desperate we are as we've sinned against him. God values brokenness over sacrifice. So we see God's attitude, but it's not just enough, right, to see that God's attitude towards sin because God actually does something about our sin, Amen. And that's what, he, that's what he highlights next. He shows that God's actions towards sin is something worth rejoicing about. As we, as we look forward to this year, the first thing we see God do is that God cleanses. God cleanses. Look at verse 7. David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me ask you, why does David ask God to cleanse him? It's kind of unusual. It's because unlike physical dirt... You can't wash yourself free of spiritual dirt. The other month I was driving uh, to church with my wife, Liz, and, and our three boys. And right Sunday morning, I don't know why, it always tends to be the hardest morning in our household. I don't know what it is. But we were leaving the, the house, uh, and we're already late for church, mostly because I had woken up late. And I started to just get very quick with my wife, and I started to become very kind of terse with her and, and frustrated with her. And you know what's interesting? We've been married almost seven years, and I still try to implement the silent treatment with my wife, as if that's going to do anything helpful. 
and we're driving along onto church, and we're like, we're going to sing about Jesus, kids. We're so... The attempts that I often make to clean up the situation, right, the silent treatment, pretending that Liz isn't there, that she's the one to blame, it never works. And what usually kind of redeems the situation and brings cleansing to it is that my wife, 99% of the time, will put her hand on my knee as we're driving and say, babe, are we doing okay? And it just kind of disarms me and it melts me. We start to talk through it and there's reconciliation and there's forgiveness and there's real cleansing. And I think the same is true with God, that, that we can't clean ourselves up, but that God has offered us a better cleansing, a spiritual cleansing, a real forgiveness. And, and think about it this way. He says, whiter than snow. He, he's not just promising to clean most of our junk up, right? God didn't come from heaven and then live the perfect life and then die the most excruciating death and then be buried and then raise again just to clean us most of the way up. The promise he makes can be taken to the bank, right? He's, he's whiter than snow, he's promising. God cleanses. God cleanses. So what, what does that mean? It means that even the, 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 the deepest shame that you carry, you go, Brian, you don't understand. I was, I was harsh with my kids the other day. And I still feel shame because of that. Well, you might need to get down on your knees and ask your kids for forgiveness. But in Jesus, you are whiter than snow. Or you go, maybe this past fall... My friends and I did something at school and we got away with it. Nobody ever found out. You might need to tell somebody about it. But in Jesus, you are whiter than snow. Amen? Friends, that is good news. God cleanses, but that's not the only thing he does in this psalm. God cleanses, but David says he also restores. God restores. Part of what makes, I think, Psalm 51 both so encouraging on one hand and I think so challenging on the other hand is this this tension because David here, it, this prayer, is, is, it, it challenges us, right? My prayers often sound like this when I sing, God, I, I messed up. Like I did it again. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me for my sin? And if your prayers sound like that, that is not a bad prayer. That is a very biblical prayer. But I think David in this psalm, he's not content with that kind of prayer. Because notice in verse 12 what he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And one of the fun things about about Hebrew poetry like the Psalms is that every kind of line, every verse is like a stanza where the first part of it tells you more about the second part of it. And so look at verse 12 again. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, part one, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so somehow in David's mind, joy and obedience are connected. They're two sides of the same coin. You're like, I don't quite understand how that all works. Let me, let me give you an illustration. It's kind of like this. I'm going to say in a moment a word, and your job, I know it's early, your job is to not think of the word. Does that make sense? So I'm going to say a word. Don't think about the word. Ready? Okay, here's the word. Yellow. I told you to be simple, right? Yellow. Don't think about yellow. Don't think about bananas. Don't think about the sun that was blasting you in the face as you came here this morning. Don't think about the lights overhead because they're kind of a yellowish tint. Don't think about yellow, okay? What what are you you thinking about? (laughs) Yeah, probably most of you are like, "Uh, I can't get it out of my mind. You just told me not to think about that, and you're talking about it. It, It's kind of silly. I think that's how you and I often try to approach God after we've sinned. 
right? We make this five-cent promise to God. We say, God, help me not to do X again. I don't want to do X. X is bad. I shouldn't do that. No more X. No more of this. I shouldn't do that. God, forgive me for that. No more of this. And then five minutes later, or five days later, five, whatever it is, we're, we're doing the same thing. And we're like, why didn't it work? Part of it is because obedience is not primarily a matter of the will. It's a matter of worship, right? The things that we find the most delight in are the things that we spend the most time doing and the most thought giving. And so David here says, I'm not just content to say, God, forgive my sin. I don't ever want to do it again. He says, God, give me a joy in you. Like, give me a delight. Give me a satisfaction that when the joys and, 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 and cravings of this world start to call out with all their glitz and glamour, I'm just able to see through them, right? For the dollar store knockoffs that they are because I have something better. I have Jesus. I have you. God, give me that kind of joy that it might sustain me with a willing spirit as I move forward. So what does that mean? Friends, certainly when you sin, ask God for forgiveness, confess your sin to him, but pray that God would give you a renewed sense of joy as he restores you, as he cleanses you. God's actions towards sin, we've seen his mercy. He forgives our sin whiter than snow. We've seen his restoration to make us to give us the power of transformation and obedience. Last thing I want to just highlight as David writes this song, we're not going to get to everything, is that if that is true, that there is a God who at the heart of the gospel says that he was made dirty so that you and I who are dirty sinners might be made clean, then we can actually respond to him through the power of his Holy Spirit. Two things that this means for us, if you want to fill them in. First, it means that we can confess our sin to God that we confess our sin to God. When you sin, the first thing that restores relationship with God is to tell him, God, I have done this. I have wronged you. I have mistrusted you. Would you forgive me? Which is a little odd if you think about it because if God is sovereign, doesn't he already know our sin? Why do we have to tell him about it, right? Have you ever thought that? I don't know all the ins and outs, but I wonder if part of it is because it's kind of like my, my wife and I. If I sin against her, does she know I sinned against her? Yeah, she's usually the first to know. Does she know that I love her? Yeah. But if, I've, if, I, don't, if I don't tell her, babe, I have sinned against you. Would you forgive me for that? I've wrong, I should not have said that then there's going to start to create this rift in our relationship, right? There's going to be this intimacy that was lost, and over time, we're going to start to go further and further away, and I think the same is true with God. That if we're in Christ, yes, our sin is forgiven. We are blameless. We are justified before God, but on a very experiential level, right, unconfessed sin, kind of hidden sin, kind of, you know, just sin that's over there, it starts to, it starts to distance us from God. We, and then we can look around and go, I feel like I'm not connected to God anymore. You know, it's often the people, as you look around the room maybe, or you know people in your life, you go, why does that person have such delight in, in God? Why does that person seem to have such a thriving walk with Jesus? And, and I don't know all, all the ins and outs, but often it's the people that see themselves as the biggest sinner. And they just know that God has been abundantly merciful, and so they're honest, and they just move toward God, even in the midst of their sin. It's a call to confess our sin to God doesn't have to have a, a particular formula, but you do need to tell God where you've fallen short to receive his mercy. And I think for some of us, maybe just myself personally, I think for some of us, that's the easy part. 
That's often the step we, we're good at or better at maybe. I think, the, I think the more challenging part is what comes next. Second thing about our action towards sin, that we can share our struggles, that we're called to share our struggles with others. I think that can be the more challenging part. I think the title that we already looked at of this psalm, it shows us that David, this was not just kind of a, a, a pen and journal in his hand kind of psalm. This was written for the nation and songbook of Israel to the choir master, which is kind of weird because imagine the worship team after this sermon were to get up and say, you know what, throw out the bulletin today. We're going to change things up on you. We're going to sing a new song. You don't even know it. It's not even on the internet because it's one that's come from our own sin. We're just going to share kind of honestly and vulnerably, and you'd be like, is this allowed, (laughs) Grace Redeemer? This is kind of, should I just leave the room and let the worship team do their thing? That would be kind of awkward because in this psalm, David, he goes public because he was the king. And so his private sins affected a whole nation. So it was very appropriate for him to write a psalm like this that would, sh- that would showcase the ways that he had fallen short. Right? It, it wouldn't really be appropriate for the worship team to... You, under- you understand what I'm saying? And notice that as David writes, his motivation in sharing this, even as ugly and twisted as it was, his sin before God, his motivation was to teach other people about what repentance looks like. Look at verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. When it's done with discernment, kind of an honest sharing of our struggles can actually be the thing that helps people to see Jesus clearly. Because they see, wow, this person who I thought was so much better than me, they actually struggle with the same and similar things. And they can be forgiven, and they can find hope, and they can find power for transformation wow, maybe I'll consider Jesus. And so he's, he's wanting to teach other people. So how do we share with other people in a way that's appropriate? Because that's kind of a, a very nuanced and tricky thing to do. It's sensitive. I think a few ways of what it doesn't look like, maybe in contrast, is that we don't share in replacement of confessing our sin to God. We need to go to God first. I think also it, 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 it means that we don't we don't share details that are unhelpful. So if you're struggling with something, you only share as much as is helpful for the person you're telling. So David here, he committed adultery, and yet he doesn't get into all the ins and outs about what it looked like to sleep with another man. It just, it wouldn't have been helpful. And yet he's honest, and he's raw, and he's vulnerable. And I think too, right, we, we share in a way that builds other people up, even other people that have wronged us. We don't, we don't go around and gossip about them, right? The person at work who's like the hard one to love down the hall, <laughs> We don't, we don't, around the board table, talk about, oh yeah, they're really hard to love. Pray for me, right? <laughs> for Ed. It, we, we actually go and talk to Ed. And we try to work it out. And if that doesn't, then we bring people in and we, we ask God for help. But don't share where sharing is gossip. But do share. Do share in, in, a, in a way to, to be vulnerable and to, to teach others. And, and, and David, we see that his motivation was to teach. But notice, even more grander than that, that it's an act of worship. Verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And so David, when he sees how big his need is, he sees even how bigger his Savior is. And it leads him to worship. It leads him to sing. In other words, when you share your struggles with others, the goal is not to say, wow, look how vulnerable Brian was at that small group. Look how humble he is. Look how, look how much he owns his sin. No, look, look at how much of a sinner Brian is. And look how much of a Savior Jesus is. That's meant to lead us to worship. And so we see 
God's abundant mercy, that we can go to him even when we have completely botched it, which if the past year is any indication of what some of the struggles will be in the upcoming year, we have much to run to him for. And yet he meets us every single time and he cleanses us and he restores us and he helps us to be honest and real people because we, we actually have a kind of a, a, a godly swagger about us. Not a cockiness, but a way that we just, we know that we've been forgiven. And so we don't need to be ashamed. We don't need to try to hide it. We can go to God. We can go to other people, even with our worst. And so as you look toward the new year, as we start the next few days, we're not that far in. But when your plan doesn't work or, or life doesn't kind of go according to plan or when maybe the, the old habits and, and things of the past start to come and bear their ugly face, friend, run to Jesus. Remember that even making a resolution for ourselves, God has made an unbreakable resolution with us that he will never leave us nor forsake us because Jesus has died for our sin and he's raised again and he's the proof that God keeps his promises. Friends, would we remember that as we enter this new year? Would that bring us hope? Would that give us a renewed sense of joy in our salvation? We ask this in Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a merciful God. Thank you that you have promised to wash us whiter than snow. God, we we often hold on to shame and regret and guilt because we... We stop short of coming to Jesus. Would you show us that you are welcoming us no matter what we've done to experience real cleansing, real restoration? Would you give us a renewed sense of your joy this year? Would you help us to be real people with you and with one another? I pray that that would be a transformation and that would lead us even into to greater places of zeal and delight in Jesus in this new year. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.